From beanies to carry bags and from shoes to caps, browse our shop now at tntradio.live. Good company and civilized debate with a premium on fun. Ross Cameron on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Well, good day and welcome back. I think it's uh, it was my friend Dimitri Burstein who uh, who with whom I associate uh, the phrase that if two company directors agree with each other on everything, one of them is surplus to requirements. And I guess I grew up uh, in a family in which differences of opinion uh, were encouraged, uh, fostered, nurtured, and. Uh, we never had the sense around the Cameron family dinner table uh, with mum, dad, six kids, and usually, you know, maybe an au pair or a neighbour or a visiting tradesman. Uh, we never had the sense that there were certain opinions that were forbidden. Um, what was the subject of sanction and the harshest criticism was to have no opinion. And so... We grew up just as we were kind of elbowing each other uh, for access to the food. Uh, we were also kind of squeezing each other for airtime uh, around the table in conversation. And uh, it was the case, as I mentioned, that um, one could not simply uh, get up and leave uh, to head off to um, get on an electronic device or even go next door to play cricket with the neighbours, one followed a kind of liturgy, which was to say, may I please have permission to leave the table? Because there was a sense in which the dinner table um, was regarded as an important institution. And indeed, um, over time, um, you know, as uh, some of you know, the Cameron household grew up for over a decade um, without television um, because my father formed the view that it militated, this communication device militated against communication. And he had this feeling that television as a medium rendered its audience too passive and that the combination of sound and pictures turned us into kind of zombies. So on a certain occasion while we were watching Happy Days or Lost in Space, he simply walked in, unplugged the television, carried it out of the room, and we did not see it again for 10 years. And in its place, um, he introduced a new institution. And uh, I'm influenced somewhat by Jordan Peterson uh, in this regard. He makes the observation that it is very difficult, he would say almost impossible, to give up an entrenched habit which provides you with pleasure unless you can actually replace that habit uh, with something else. Uh, that you also enjoy, which may be less harmful uh, to your mind or body. So I think when you go to, when you consider your New Year's resolutions, um, you know, you ought to put them in that context. There's a lot of people who will say, I really need to shed 10 kegs over the next 10 months. If you're going to, you need to find a way to replace the thing 
that you're currently enjoying uh, with uh, some uh, alternative pastime uh, means of concentration. But the thing my father replaced the television with was um, a speech from each of the children uh, from the set of stairs which led from the kitchen up into the attic where my brother Jock and I each had our bedrooms. And that set of stairs was a perfect-sized uh, pulpit, one could look down uh, onto the whole table, and each of us were required, not every night, uh, but with a pre fairly predictable frequency after dinner uh, to clear the plates and then for each child to have to rise up on the stairs and make a speech to the rest of the family, varying lengths depending upon our age. And we were always at liberty to choose the topic, uh, but if we could not think of a topic, uh, my father would choose it for us, which is uh, so often the case in life, that where we have no agenda, we wind up with someone else's. Um, and then uh, afterwards, after giving uh, the oration, uh, we would move around the table and each member of the family would sort of be required to give their commentary, uh, their criticism, what they agreed with, what they disagreed with, um, what uh, they felt about the manner of delivery, too many ums and ahs, too much shifting around, which I know I'm quite guilty of on this little podcast now that we are, uh, now that you have to put up with the picture as well as the sound. Um, but the point I want to make to you where I started is that the the dissenting opinion is nearly always more valuable uh, than the agreeing opinion. Um, it takes a bit of courage to express dissent, to have the confidence in your own reasoning and articulate powers to make a dissenting case. Um, indeed, it was Albert Einstein who said that most people are not capable of holding a dissenting thought in their brains, uh, let alone of articulating it. And so, you know, we uh, on the Ross Cameron Show wish to encourage alternative thinking. Um, we wish to encourage the dissenter. Uh, we wish to encourage the minority. We wish to accept that nearly all of the great, we've just been with uh, uh, Igor Sudelska, the great crypto Australian entrepreneur. And, you know, crypto was just literally absolutely rubbish, derided, sneered at uh, by the existing big financial institutions when it arrived. They all said it was destined to fail. It was going nowhere, but it's still here. Uh, and it turns out that Igor and the other dissenting minority uh, were onto something. And so, likewise, on the subject of climate change, uh, I was certainly amongst published sources, uh, somebody like me or John Ruddock, uh, the libertarian member of the New South Wales Parliament, who in his maiden speech says, we attack the tree at the roots. We don't believe there is such a thing as climate science. We think Al Gore is the greatest fraud ever in America, the greatest snake oil salesman. 
Uh, we think that his climate change thesis has got all the timber ballast and merit of his backward masking satanic lyrics on records thesis that he promoted at the time when he was a great pro-life champion, um, you know, before uh, he uh, uh, before he left his wife to become to to recover his hopes as a climate change uh, advocate. Um, I also want to make clear that in relation to dissent, uh, I am in dissent in relation to the Ukraine war. Uh, you know, we hear uh, from our, you know, uh, our, our fearless, uh, senile uh, geriatric um, that the United States has just authorised another 200 million in weapons for Ukraine. Well, you know, it, and Australia is up to its eyeballs in this daft uh, plan and is increasingly ever more tightly intermeshed with the United States as the kind of big brother in the relationship. And we have become the kind of fag end of the US Defence Force. And US, as I understand it, is about to lease us or has agreed to lease us, whether they will ever actually turn up, we shall see, but the legislation has been passed, uh, three nuclear-powered submarines. Um, I will tell you that I am in dissent. Uh, Ukraine is never going to win this war. Uh, it was never going to win the war. Uh, there is an obvious peaceful settlement which has been available, uh, you know, basically for two years. Uh, the Russian side has been keen, proactive, uh, encouraging of a peaceful settlement. Uh, but those who resist it, who are determined to carry on uh, the killing and the carnage are, in particular, uh, the US Democrats, some Republicans, um, and the United Kingdom. I mean, Boris Johnson was the one. When Putin came to Zelensky and said, let's do a deal, we'll just take, you know, the four provinces on the eastern seaboard who are Russian-speaking and Russian Orthodox worshipping, and after a vote of where they wish to remain, which will, without doubt, follow exactly the same vote as the Crimean status referendum in 2014, in which 96% of them voted uh, to be returned to Russia, um, then, um, you know, uh, uh, Ukraine won't join NATO uh, and they'll live together peacefully. Now, Ukraine wants this deal. Even the money laundering spiv, uh, the comedian Zelensky wants the deal. The only imped the impediment to the deal is us, is NATO, is uh, Joe Biden and, um, you know, the, the government of the UK. And uh, we have to admit, as our motherland, uh, one of the great defects, one of the sins and crimes of the United Kingdom is that we have been a joint attracted to avoidable wars. And this war is entirely avoidable. And there's over half a million dead because of the failure of leadership. Uh, there are times when, in my judgment, a people, country, tribe faces a conflict which is unavoidable. And I am not a complete pacifist in that sense. I believe that when the intruder arrives, when you wake and find an intruder in your home, uh, you have a duty uh, to defend uh, your family, uh, your home, uh, your possessions. And likewise, there are moments when you have a duty to defend your nation. 
but there is this very serious permanent disconnect between the so-called leaders making the decision to go to war uh, and the the boys and girls whose blood and gore get spilled on the paddocks of Ukraine. So, um, you know, that and, and that disconnect between those who make the decision to go to war and those who bear the consequences of the war is even greater now under NATO policy, which indeed was articulated by my Australia's former Prime Minister, I would say regrettably, my former uh, mate, and uh, Tony Abbott, who asked the House Speaker, you know, can you please guarantee you're going to just give a shitload more bombs, bullets, guns and carnage to Eastern Europe as your gift uh, to the region? Uh, because, you know, Ukraine has got some chance, in my judgment, zero of, quote, winning this war. It never had a chance of winning. Russia was never going to allow itself to lose on its own border. I'm sorry. This is not a case of the US dropping bombs and opening a war in Afghanistan or Iraq or Syria or Libya. This is right on the doorstep of Russia. And they were always going to mobilise every last man, woman and tank uh, to defend uh, their country. And so very, very stupid. And I have to say, you know, with regret, it gives me no pleasure. One of the worst things about being a kind of commentator, if you have any pretensions to telling the truth, uh, like Socrates, to follow the facts, wherever they may lead you, like a boat blown uh, by the wind, uh, you have to call it as you see it. And I think when Tony Abbott had his back to the wall as Australia's Prime Minister, and his personal popularity was in free fall from about the 12-month mark into his administration, uh, he, he, he leapt upon the opportunity to insult Vladimir Putin uh, after the uh, MH17 uh, tragedy. And he accused, effectively accused Vladimir Putin of murder and said that within 24 hours of the event before any investigation had begun, uh, and then he announced his intention to shirt front uh, Vladimir Putin. The Australian electorate, uh, I suppose, revealing their venality and boredom, uh, rewarded this intervention with a an uptick in Tony's personal popularity at, at a time when he had his head under the water, running out of oxygen, desperate for air, pushing with all his will towards some sort of public support, found a seam of, uh, of, of, uh, of political uplift and ever since has been absolutely committed uh, to hostility uh, towards Russia and Vladimir Putin in particular. I don't believe it's in Australia's national interest. It might be in the interest of the British Board of Trade. I don't know. Uh, it's a deeply regrettable position in my view. Uh, I just hope that going into 2024, uh, our leaders might look for opportunities to make peace uh, rather than to make war. You're on The Ross Cameron Show. We'll be right back. <laughs> 
You should hear what Charlie Robinson is talking about. I think once we saw the supply chain issues uh, that happened during the COVID debacle, you go, well, that seems bad for the, you know, when you're fighting somebody for toilet paper, but it could be worse, right? It could be the last can of food. So people are starting to reevaluate and reassess their situations and their relationship with supply chains and the like. And I think what that does is it leads you to a place of saying, how can I make myself less dependent on the system? It's kind of hard to know where to start, right? Where would you suggest we even begin with this process? Yeah, it's funny you said that because someone said to me recently and it made me laugh that this is going to be the kind of collapse where the Burger King's still open. I think that's what's probably lulling people into a false sense of security in that everything when we go to the city kind of appears normal unless you're in one of those really crazy drug adult cities. But for most people, I would say, Charlie, it feels normal, but it ain't normal. <laughs> the world yeah. is not normal. It's completely gone off kilter. Sure. Charlie Robinson on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. The challenges our planet's animals are facing sometimes feel a bit heavy. The animals haven't eaten in a day, two days. They haven't drank anything. They're cold, they're dehydrated. As soon as we started our descent, everywhere I could see was mud. Just absolutely mud. You know, the country has been long for drought so long. It was like a tinderbox waiting to go up. Okay, very heavy. Each of us wants to be part of the solution, and we can be. Remember that there's good happening right now. At home. All right, we were able to get into the unit, and we have all four of your cats. So, uh... Okay. And around the world. For any animal in any disaster. So let's focus on that, right? Be part of the solution. One rescue at a time. Search ifa.org forward slash disaster ready. Plug in. Website. TNTradio.live. Check it out. Today's News Talk Radio. It's the coolest. TNT. Welcome back. Um, Having mentioned that I've just spent a few days in Latin America, principally in Argentina, um, I thought we should have a little bit of a Latin flourish uh in uh, in this part of the show and so i have lent on professor augusto zimmerman um, who is indeed a, a prolific author uh professor of law a former sort of commissioner on the wa legal reform commission um and in my judgment one of the most lucid uh, and productive minds in the country um, whenever I see Augusto's name on the top of an article, which is quite frequently, my immediate response, like Pavlov's dog, is to read it. Um, you will tell from his accent that Augusto is not native Australian-born, but indeed hails from Brazil, from which country he is broadcasting to us right now. Augusto Zimmerman, welcome to the Ross Cameron Show. Thanks, Ross. It's a pleasure to talk with you again. Well, look, um, tell us, what what are you doing in Brazil? Well, I'm visiting my family and uh, and uh, get in touch with the loved ones. Uh, I have a, a very big family here and um, try to have a break from the madness of the things that we see in Australia to be witness, witnessing the madnesses uh, that are taking place over here. Yes, yes. 
Well, look, that is, I think, quite uh, any uh, a relevant uh, and important issue for every single listener uh, to the Ross Cameron show. Is that you know, indeed, we have some sort of mental health service provider advertisement, you know, in the lead up to the show. Uh, the benefits of which I remain fairly sceptical about, if I'm going to be frank with you. Um, I think the more you talk about suicide, the more often it happens. Yeah. But um, but I will say that all of us feel a kind of some sort of dystopian cloud around us to a greater or lesser mm. degree. And we see it in the small details of the life. <coughs> Uh, but up to the big uh, meta decisions of our state, federal, and indeed global uh, governments. And so how you retain your sense of equilibrium, poise, uh, in the midst of the constant assaults of the progressive left, who seems always to be looking for the next little village or hamlet to invade, um, besides returning to your family in Brazil, how does Augusto stay sane? Well, look, uh, I'm just about to embark on a, on my holidays. Mm. I'm spending seven days in a tropical paradise here called Buzios, uh, and together with my girlfriend. So this is going to help a lot. <laughs> but uh, and then and then of course to be ready for the new battles that um, we are having to face in Australia, not only in Australia but. Um, it's a glo global phenomenon now. And uh, uh, here, uh, the oppression comes mainly from the judiciary uh, because uh, judges are being used uh, as instruments of tyranny at the moment. In Australia, uh, the politicians can do the job for themselves. And they're about to introduce this uh, terrible uh, misinformation uh, legislation that uh, will be used for the purpose of silence any dissent whatsoever or any subject what subject whatsoever. So uh, uh, it's amazing to see that the whole world is being taken over by a bunch of global oligarchs uh, who are using their powers to uh, silence conversations, debates, and impose their very uh, destructive agenda mm. on the popula respective populations. Well, look, we did actually have... Uh... An Australian judge reported uh, this weekend who had a pretty decent crack at the police prosecutors who are bringing charges uh, around the country, which he says uh, um, don't pass a basic test of likelihood of achieving a conviction um, and that there's a kind of a uh, charges in particular against men on allegations of sexual violence uh, <laughs> advanced without the most elementary consideration of the evidence or the likelihood of the complainant being able to uh, secure a verdict. Um, but in Brazil, as I understand it, we've got a, a very uh, a different problem, uh, which you've just touched on, which is the locking up of dissenters. Uh, can you give us a sense? I mean, I saw a figure which shocked me of the number of, in effect, political prisoners in jail in Brazil. Can give us the mud map of uh, of the criminalization of dissent in Brazil? Well, nobody can have the audacity to question the outcome of the recent elections. Uh, the elections are totally non-transparent, which is uh, in clear violation of Section 
five or Article five of the Brazilian Constitution. I say I can say things about Brazilian Constitution for authority because I have a one thousand page book written in Portuguese on the subject, and um, and these measures are completely in violation of uh, important uh, parts or sections of the document of the Constitution, which guarantees the rights to to freedom of speech and the right to a fair and transparent election. There was no such thing because the previous president was quite popular. I actually do not know anybody who voted for the, this uh, uh, so-called winner. Uh, so it's very suspicious, the whole thing. And you saw also, or I have witnessed, the fact that judges were lobbying, uh, judges of the Supreme Court, in the parliament uh, to uh, retain the electronic voting system which is, um, uh, makes it very hard for people who are not IT experts to know whether the um, outcome of the election was really, a, uh, you know, a, a reflection of what, what, what people really uh, voted for. So I have my suspicions, but nobody can actually uh, question the outcome of the election without being persecuted. Uh, and not only that, but uh, those who now criticize judges in Brazil are severely punished as well. So what we are facing in Brazil is the end of democracy. There is no such thing anymore. Uh, these people are not going to leave power by normal uh, legal means. The only solution now will be meta-legal. And I feel meta-legal, if, if I can say it in my, using the Australian accent. But that's the main problem. I mean, I, I don't see a, a possible um, peaceful resolution for the problem, which is really disheartening to me and, and to millions of Brazilians who expected that things could be different. How many political prisoners are there now in Brazil? Well, 1,000 uh, innocent people, uh, people who were peacefully protesting against a very uh, controversial election and also just uh, uh, demanding more democracy, more the rule of law. And um, as a result of the peaceful protests, uh, they were all uh, incriminated, they were charged, and they are now being sentenced to uh, penalties of up to 17 years jail, which wow. is much higher than the penalties for rapists and, and murderers and, and so forth. And the only crime was to be uh, protesting against the outcome of an election, exercising the right to freedom of speech. Obviously, there were infiltrators in the movement doing acts of violence. They were all infiltrators from the left, the radical left, that were uh, sent to these meetings to cause such disturbances. And the recordings of these um, actions were deleted or were basically destroyed by the Brazilian government because that would be the evidence that we needed to prove that these actions were orchestrated by the government with the support of the extreme left here in Brazil. Okay. Um well, look, I um, originally um, invited you on the show uh, to discuss another subject uh, on which you have likewise uh, published uh, certainly several articles, um, which is this, um, in some respects, strange new phenomena, this fresh libertarian breeze, uh, which yeah. is blowing through Brazil's neighbour, Argentina, in the form of Javier Millet. Uh, for our listeners, J-A-V-I-E-R-M-I-L-E-I, -E -E um, I would love you. Malay is very different 
to your run-of-the-mill Latin leader, indeed very different to any Western leader, um, you know, I'm sort of in love with him. Um, Give us uh, the Augusto snapshot of Javier Malay, the new president of Argentina. Well, you know, when uh, they chose an Argentinian pope, I my a friend of mine asked what I thought about that. I said nothing good can come from Argentina. As a good Brazilian, I would uh, <laughs> I would say so. But uh, I'm so surprised to see that that um, Argentinians finally got it right. I used to say that they suffer from collective schizophrenia, and that is when uh, a a, a population uh, commit the same same mistakes over and over again. They never learn any lessons whatsoever. So Argentina has a tradition of being very fascistic, left-wing fascistic, because of a character uh, who started to destroy the country in the 1930s called uh, Peron. And so the Peronist uh, movement is very strong. It's a mixture of um, socialism with nationalism. It's a national socialist movement that has pretty much doomed and destroyed Argentina. It seems that even to this very day, about 40% of the population in Argentina still regard themselves as being Peronist. 60% of the working force in Argentina work, work continue to work for the government and only 40% for the private sector. So it's a very pretty much destroyed nation. And if it's, it's it has been so destroyed that they are now desperate, trying to find a solution. So there is, a a very a fertile soil for classical liberal libertarian ideas to uh, flourish in Argentina because they have reached the, the bottom of this whole thing. They have been uh, uh, testing these bad ideas for such a long time that nobody believes in socialism anymore in Argentina. And, and this Millet is amazing. He's so charismatic and the youth love, they love him. So I'm starting to feel very hopeful for Argentina, but he's going to find, find it very difficult to be able to rule because of course the Congress's control is still controlled by uh, people who are part of the establishment. So the status quo will offer difficulties for him, but we need to continue to support this guy because uh, I love the way he talks and I love his boldness. I think he's such an amazing guy. So refreshing to see a person telling the truth finally. Yes, well, it's interesting. I asked uh, one of your, I suppose, um, excuse me, fellow academic colleagues um, from one of Buenos Aires' great universities, the question of how would you uh, define Malay? And uh, Ivan Kachanovsky, uh, who is an economics professor, um, he said, well, his most defining personality trait is that he seems incapable of telling a lie. And uh, this was said That's also good. of uh, of George Washington, and I think largely of um, Abraham Lincoln. Um, you know, I think his first in his first week or so in office, there have been, I think, one or two <coughs> fudges around the margins. Um, but when I asked the taxi driver. Um, I asked the two taxi drivers, one uh, from the airport to the hotel in Buenos Aires and the second one from the hotel to the airport, you know, what do you think of Malay? The first one said, uh, I think uh, he's an extremist. 
I think he will make uh, the rich richer and the poor poorer. Uh, the second one gave a much more reflective response and said, look, I think Argentines recognise that something must change, uh, that we cannot continue the way we are and that there is going to be some pain uh, before any gain. And then he said, I think there must be some connection between what a man says and what he does. And that is what Millet brings. Mm -hmm. I, I agree with that. Another thing I have to say is that he's a typical classical liberal in the sense that he uh, um, uh, claims to believe in God and to believe in the idea of the sanctity of human life. So at the same time, he's a libertarian. He acknowledges the right to life as the most important because, of course, uh, those who are not able to stay alive cannot enjoy the remaining ones. So he made important statements about protecting life and, um, and also um, taking a very classical liberal approach to limited government, separation of powers and the rule of law. And he's uh, very courageously, um, you know, discussing moral issues as well saying that one of the first measures he would uh, uh, take was uh, that would be to abolish the gender diversity ministry. So uh, he got many points with me on that. So um, I'm feeling that he is a classical liberal in the, in the true sense of the word, because he knows what he's talking about by combining uh, that tradition of natural law and natural rights with the necessity of limiting the power of the state by separating the powers of the state which, by the way, is something that we do not have in Australia. So perhaps uh, it's something that um, we need another melee. Perhaps we could clone him and send to Australia because it's desperately needed. Unfortunately, in Australia, we cannot elect our leaders, which makes it, it quite difficult for us to have decent politicians because ultimately the leader in our country is chosen by the oligarchy in parliament. So I prefer much more the presidential model than the Westminster system for this reason. Yeah. Well, presumably, um, you know, I mean, an outsider like Malay, I mean, his uh, Libertad, uh, what is it, Avanti? Uh, you can Avanti libert Libertad. Yeah, Avanti Libertad. Like, uh, yeah. Which means that freedom advances. Um, yeah. And it uh, only has very modest representation in the Congress. Uh, but he has managed, Malay has, I think, largely with the help of his um, elusive uh, and interesting sister and others, put together a coalition in the Congress, which has parlayed his very small initial seats won into a much wider sort of voting block. We don't know whether that block will hold under the pressure that's about to be applied to it. Um, but I, I assume that the real test is whether he can retain a sense of connection with the ordinary Argentine over the next two years before the midterm congressional elections, yeah. uh, when he will be hoping that he can take his roughly sort of 40% uh, members of his loose coalition and turn them into a solid majority and no doubt his critics will be doing everything they can to ensure that the whole dream uh, hits the ground with a hard thud uh, and that he goes backwards in the midterm congressionals. But what do you, how do you rate his prospects? Well, look, the first year of his uh, mandate to uh, make these changes have to be 
the, the first year has to be uh, carried properly. I think it's uh, a problem when we see the likes of um, Bolsonaro, for instance, and even Trump taking too long to make the necessary changes. Yeah. If you don't do it really quick, it gets really difficult, mm. even because you have to cut off many privileges of the parasitical ruling classes in Argentina, and they will uh, do everything they can to destabilize his government. So the, the unpleasant measures for the oppress, oppressive ruling elites have to be done very quickly, so that in about four years, the people can see the positive outcomes of what can be initially regarded as being economically or even socially painful. But these are necessary things to do in order to turn Argentina into a healthy and prosperous nation, as it was in the past. But one thing I have to say is the pressure might not come just from the Congress. It might actually come from this uh, oligarchical judiciary, because that's what we see in Brazil now. Brazil has a, a constitution full of, of so-called constitutional rights. And Argentina does also have this thing. So I'm not so sure where the judges can be used by the oligarchs to actually uh, cause obstacles for these changes on the basis of inventing that some of these measures might somehow violate some constitutional provisions. So I do not trust the judicial elite, and I think we have to be very careful about what they will do in Argentina. Okay. Well, um, it's been a pleasure, uh, as I knew it would be. I have required you, I know, to get up quite early in the morning. <laughs> Um, but it's a pleasure. Uh, I uh, I uh, I know you. I'm pleased to get a chance uh, to have a break in a beautiful location with your beautiful companion. Uh, so we will look forward to seeing you again in 2024. Happy Christmas. God bless you. And thanks for joining God the Ross Cameron you. Show. Thank you so much, Ross. Keep up the good work. All right. Thanks, I love mate. what you do. Bye-bye. Bless you. Bless there you, you go. Uh, we'll always take a bit of encouragement from... Uh, Augusta Zimmerman and the Brains Trust of Western Australia. You're on the Ross Cameron Show. We'll take a short break and we'll be right back. With his expert analysis and opinion, this is TNT Radio's Timothy Shea. Stop letting leftists set the agenda. Stop letting them turn nothing burgers into the most pressing issues of the day. Stop letting them use words like inclusion, equity, fairness, and diversity as cudgels to beat you into submission. Stop bowing, stop scraping, stop bending the knee, and stop giving them what they desire, an abject apology, assuring them that they'll get their way and everything will be fine. Because it won't be fine. That won't be the last complaint. Every time you submit to them, you encourage them. You give them more fuel for their next attack, and it will go on for decades. The Onondaga Nation complained to Syracuse University about the Saltine Warrior mascot in 1978. And here we are, 45 years later, the Onondaga Nation is complaining to Liverpool High School about using Warriors as their athletic mascot. For 45 years it was fine, but now all of a sudden in 2023 it's not. Stop giving in to this culture of destruction. From MAGAinstitute.com, this is Timothy Shea for TNT Radio. I tell my son, I love you every single day. Now my dad has never said that to me. Not because he doesn't love me, but because culturally it wasn't comfortable for him. Now that he's a grandfather, he says I love you to my son every time he sees him. My advice to all the fathers out there, forget the cultural restrictions. 
They grow up way too fast for you to waste even a single precious moment. Driving the conversation, Ross Cameron on today's News Talk TNT Radio. Well, welcome back. We are coasting into the final stretch. Got another 15 minutes together. If there is anything which is absolutely burning on your mind that you wish to discuss or draw uh, to our attention, feel free in Australia to give me a call on 1-800-670-310. The talkback lines are always open in this porous and democratic show. Um, you know, I suppose I can have a little whinge Um about the uh, Australian cricket team just because I find them on my screen. And, um, you know, I, like I suppose many of uh, the listeners to this show, uh, grew up with cricket as a very sort of important feature of Australia, in particular at this time of year. And the, uh, not the Boxing Day test, you know, the Christmas in the Cameron household usually involved a combination of a at least a carol service somewhere in Sydney. Um, usually, my father was a member of parliament, sort of pressing his way to, uh, you know, achieve some uh, you know, recognition or participation half the time. Um, then a big, uh, a big family meal. Um, masses way too much food. Um, we got things at Christmas. We didn't get uh, any other time. Obviously, the ritual of opening presents on um, Christmas morning, uh, which was always the sort of highlight of the kids. There is something about a gift, in particular a wrapped gift, a present, uh, which holds a universal absolutely magnetic attraction uh, to every child on the planet. Um, and indeed, I would sort of say there has been a bit of, uh, you know, if we talk, the, talk about the arms race taking place around the world, there has been something of a presence race in Western countries um, where the number of presence and the expense uh, being made on presence is uh, just a little bit eye-watering and I'm not always convinced is uh, in the interests of the child. Indeed, there is a, um, a character in Harry Potter, um, Pugsley, is it, maybe, the fat kid um, who... Uh, you know, uh, who Harry is living there as the unwelcome sort of uh, stepchild and uh, he gets no presents. Dudley, maybe it is, um, you'll tell me, one of our listeners will tell me. Um, and he was absolutely furious because he only received 39 presents and he wanted 42, so his mother had to rush out uh, and repair the deficit. Um, a very interesting question of how do you, uh, but I was going to say I'm distracted, uh, you know, um, 
then what the Camerons would do, there would be absolutely long, lazy afternoons on the couch where we were allowed, um, you know, in the latter part of my childhood um, to watch the Boxing Day Test and the Sydney to Hobart Yacht Race. And there was a sense in which there was nothing else we had to do. Um, we had done everything that had to be done, except perhaps to wash up, as we always manually did in the sink uh, without a dishwasher. Uh, and actually, many of my most interesting childhood conversations took place with one of my siblings or parents standing at the sink with a very uh, increasingly saturated dish towel. Uh, I'm not sure exactly how the what the hygiene consequences were of our method of the water getting gradually colder, more greasy, um, of actually removing whatever it was meant to remove on the utensils. Uh, but it was certainly good for my education, the conversation. We were always expected to either help set the table uh, or to wash up afterwards. And... Um, I will say I went and had um, I went and joined a Shabbat uh, dinner, a Friday night dinner with one of the rabbis of the um, eastern suburbs who kindly invited me, and I have to tell you that I was awestruck uh, by the cooperation of the children in the preparation of the meal, um, where the matriarch, who was obviously in charge, uh, she barely had to move because the children, uh, of which there were a large number, um, were anticipating her every need uh, in a ritual which they have obviously undertaken uh, every Friday night uh, throughout the entire course of their lives. But there was something very, very beautiful about the extent to which the kids were helping um, in the uh, preparation of the meal. And that uh, rabbi, for what it's worth, uh, is Dovid uh, Slavin. And it just made me realise that, you know, my kids who somewhat resentfully can be dragged to the table from their bedrooms, um, you know, my father's rule. Uh, was on what tasks he did and did not do at home was basically why bark when you have a dog uh, looking me between the eyes uh, and instructing me to go out and get the lawnmower started or my other daily task with six kids plus mum and dad we had uh, 12 pints of milk either 10 or 12 pints of milk every day and so my last job at the end of the day was to carry the empty milk bottles to the bottom of the driveway. Uh, my first task in the morning uh, was that nobody could have breakfast until I had walked down the serpentine driveway uh, to collect uh, the filled uh, pints and drag them back up the hill. <coughs> I recall, uh, you know, those were the days where you could just leave the uh, the milk out there with little uh, security risk. Um, and indeed, you could leave the cash out there to pay the milkman 
you know, on the Wednesday when it was time to settle the account. Um, we did uh, before that practice eventually ended. I'm not sure if it ended because it was no longer possible to leave the milk out or to organise a payment mechanism that was secure. But we did go through a period where the milk was being stolen. And I will recall my mother's response, very characteristic, uh, uh, was to write a handwritten note in an envelope addressed to the thief, uh, where she just said, Dear thief, uh, if you need this bottle of milk more than my six children, you're welcome to take it. And uh, seemed to do the trick. Um, nonetheless, um, we were expected to participate. And I just point out... You know, if you look at the um, Persian uh, system of education, uh, which had three central characteristics during the period of time when Persia was by far the world's greatest power, indeed the world's first real superpower, uh, it was based on three principles, um, to be able to ride a horse, uh, to shoot straight, and to tell the truth to ride, to shoot, and to tell the truth. And that was the principal foundation of Persian education, certainly of boys. But the boys were all uh, required to leave home very young, I think about the age of seven or eight, where they went into a kind of military barracks situation where the training, the martial training intensified. Uh, but, you know, the authors, Xenophon in particular, in his uh, History of the Education of Cyrus the Great, which I would commend to you if you're thinking you might need something to read uh, this Christmas and you want to fellowship with one of the great minds uh, producing uh, crystalline um, Greek prose, uh, The Education of Cyrus by Xenophon uh, would be a very good place to start. Uh, but Xenophon points out that one of the things that a young Persian was expected to have mastered by a relatively young age was the ability to greet and engage in conversation with an adult to whom they are unrelated. And as you are uh, considering uh, your uh, goals um, for this holiday period, I think since it is difficult for us to really effectively turn the wheel, uh, the very first steam engine, I think it was James Watt who put a handle dowel on the very top of the wheel to climb up a ladder to reach it and get hold of it, to pull it down by his own weight because the engine once going would have sufficient momentum to keep going, but getting that first overcome of inertia uh, was a big part of the challenge. So over this year, I, this is probably the last broadcast of the year, I must admit I was deeply impressed by my conversation with Mark Hornshaw two weeks ago, who is the Vice President of the Libertarian Party of New South Wales, but also um, a very accomplished home educator, 
and passionately believes that the home must be a place of learning. Uh, indeed, for many of our children, the home must be a place of unlearning uh, the daft left Marxist uh, attack on nature and personality, which is described as an Australian education. So uh, really as a note to self, since we can't necessarily or easily change the big meta policies which seem to just swirl over and around us, it's worth asking what are the little things uh, that might be within our power or control. And indeed, uh, if I look behind me, I might find uh, Brother Epictetus. So here he is, here he is. I've got a beautiful uh, little portrait, which was a gift to me from my uh, one of my children. Epictetus, the Greek slave uh, philosopher, who was so influential on Marcus Aurelius. And as we sort of zoom out, just ask ourselves the simple questions, the basics, you know, what is the fundamental insight of uh, Epictetus? So lovingly recorded, not by himself at all, but by his student, Arian of Nicomedes, who also wrote a beautiful biography of Alexander the Great, which you might also add to your reading list if you wish. Um, Epictetus says the key thing you must do I must do is to distinguish those matters that are within your control and those matters which are beyond your control. And you must acquire the maturity, uh, the skill of uh, separating the two and concentrating all of your emotional and practical resources only on those things you can influence and control. So getting your children to learn how to shake someone's hand firmly, look them in the eye and introduce themselves, uh, to engage in a conversation uh, with an adult stranger on a wide range of subjects, uh, to help in preparation of the meal and the cleanup afterwards, uh, to limit their desire for another present, uh, but to learn to think instead of the present they might give uh, to someone else. These Ah, the musings, the notes to self of Ross Cameron on the final show of this year. Thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure to have had your company on the Ross Cameron Show. Mm -hmm.